Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live on location for the first time, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call and we'll talk about your tech questions or business in tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. I'm Noah Chalaya. So first on location broadcast, guys, how cool is this? We knew very early on, long before we launched this show, that the ability to bring you a high quality, high octane radio broadcast from anywhere in the world was going to be imperative. At UltraSpeed Technologies, we're consistently and constantly expanding our remote services division. That launched officially towards the end of 2016, and that means that we're now managing workstations and servers and network all around the country. As In fact, I'll stop there. I'll go back, excuse me, around the world, because we actually manage a network for a resort in Vancouver, British Columbia. So welcome to the program. We're happy to bring this program to you live, away from the studio. Now, we haven't gone very far. We're nowhere special. We're just outside of the studio. So if we have to, we can hightail it back if this all falls apart. But we wanted to try producing a show on location this week because next week is a very special week for the Ask Noah Show. We're going to be doing a show live from JB1. And Chris and I have a ton of plans. We're going to be playing with VR. We're going to be making a bunch of shows. We've got some studio projects that we're going to try and do. And... Maybe I'll see if I can drag him onto this program for you guys, and he can answer some questions with me. Now, in true AltaSpeed fashion, we are using creative cost-saving solutions without sacrificing any quality. So my goal is, if I don't tell you that I'm on location, you'd never know, because the audio quality of our system is hopefully that good. So hopefully my voice sounds no different to you today than it has in the past weeks. Speaking of Linux Fest, it's going to be in the beautiful Pacific Northwest the Ask Noah Show will be live May 6th from the show floor. We're going to be doing a special edition of the Ask Noah Show, so make sure to tune in for that. All right, I want to jump right into the ZDNet.com headline, Ubuntu 17.04, the bittersweet Linux release. Canonical dropped its smartphone and tablet plans, uh, and turned uh, uh, this in turn ended its plan to make Unity the universal default interface. Instead, GNOME will become Ubuntu's future desktop. Days Later, longtime CEO Jane Silber resigned in favor of the company's founder, Mark Shuttleworth. Despite all of that, Canonical still hit its mark for delivering the latest release of its flagship operating system, Ubuntu 17.04. Unity 7 remains Ubuntu's default desktop. You can, of course, run it with your choice of other desktops. Canonical officially supports Budgie with Ubuntu Budgie, KDE with Kubuntu, LXDE with Lubuntu, Mate with Ubuntu Mate, and of course, XFCE with Kubuntu. <clears throat> now, if you want to talk about your distro of choice, your desktop environment, give us a call right now, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624, and we'll talk. Um, so this is the second to last release of Ubuntu with Unity. So we'll have 17.10 in October. Do you get that? That's, that's how they name them. So October of 2017, that's what they call it. They call it 17.10. Um, and, uh, and anyway, that, that will be, that'll be it for the official releases with Unity. And I say official because I think Unity has, a, they've had a great run. They offer a lot of really cool features and, I think that that's, that project is probably going to continue outside of the official release. I really believe that. Uh, so for those of you that uh, – if, if any of these words sound foreign to you, distro, desktop environment, if any of that sounds weird to you, they are simply options that are available to you. They are not required. Um, you don't have to use any of these. The great thing is – they are going to be available to you when you need them. 
So, for example, if when you get to the point where you're looking for a different desktop environment, if the Linux desktop that ships by default isn't doing it for you anymore, you don't have to worry. You can, in fact, switch to something that meets your needs. And that's that's a really cool thing. And actually, I am we're trying to get um, a guest on. This is the first guest that we've ever done on the Ask Noah program, so you'll have to forgive. This is a little clunky the first time I'm doing it. But basically, it's my friend and colleague, Mr. Michael Tunnell, and he runs a company called Visuex, which is the company that produced the Ask Noah dashboard. And basically, he's going to come on and he is going to be talking with us on why he thinks Canonical got it wrong, why they shouldn't have gone to the GNOME desktop environment after leaving Unity, and why they actually should have gone with KDE instead, KDE Plasma. So our first guest of the program, sorry it took you a little minute, or it took me a minute there to get you connected, but welcome to the program, Michael. All right, we're going to put Michael back on hold, and uh, Sarah, our call screener, maybe can get that sorted out. Um, uh, and uh, so th- I apologize for this. This is, this is live radio. This is kind of how it goes. Um, so the thing to note here is when you do go looking for options, they are going to be here. And like we said last week, Linux is not a one-size-fits-all approach. After you've settled on what distribution of Linux to use, and if you're just starting out, that should be Ubuntu, then you get to decide what you want to stay with on the default desktop environments or if you want to be adventurous and find a desktop environment that fits your taste. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Now, there are some cool things under the hood of 1704, and I want to start with the fact that it ships with kernel 4.10. That's 4.10. LibreOffice 5.3 with their stupid optional ribbon. I, I know that that is a really cool feature that people want to wanted to see was this ribbon feature. And basically what they're doing is they're imitating Microsoft Office. And, um, you know, that's great. But <laughs> I, I am not a big fan of the ribbon. But if you are, that is now an option and a chipping default with 1704. Uh, most exciting to me is the end of a swap partition. So basically, if you're not familiar with what a swap partition is, a swap partition is a section of the hard drive that is carved out to use basically as substitute RAM. Now, when your system runs out of memory, one of two things are going to happen. You're either going to kill a process, and hopefully it wasn't an important one, or your kernel panics, and then everything crashes. So despite what people will tell you, swap is very, very important. But no, didn't you just say that we got rid of swap? No, no, no. I said that we got rid of a swap partition. Ubuntu is now going to be using a swap file. That's going to make things a uh, a lot faster. Okay, uh, let's see if I have – let's see if we've gotten this, uh, this, this, uh, this system connected. Um, I'm getting all sorts of messages. Let me see if I can uh, – let me see if I can get Michael back on the line here. We're going to connect that. And again, I apologize. I feel completely unprofessional doing this live on the air. But uh, again, live radio, this is kind of how it goes. Ubuntu is uh, – they have other options. Aside from they have KDE and they have GNOME and KDE and GNOME used to duke it out uh, a long time ago. That was that was a big thing for them. Um, And when I kind of grew up, it was basically this idea of like you had a choice. You could either go with GNOME, which was like the professional thing, or you could go with KDE, which was like the the easy to use kind of a thing. And so and you kind of had to pick one or the other. Now, the way Linux is set up, most people tend to think that Linux is driverless because most of the drivers are baked into the kernel. So the average user is saying to him or herself, golly gee, on Windows, I had to install all of those drivers on Linux. Everything just works out of the box. Linux is the best. Well, Linux is the best, but Linux has drivers. They're just on a higher shelf out of reach of the children. And so you can play with those knives, you know, when you're all grown up. Um but one of the things that, that uh, 1704 introduced, and this is kind of cool, is driverless printing. And basically, um, if you have IPP Anywhere or Apple AirPrint printers, they're going to work over USB or on the network. Now, Canonical says it's literally as easy as plugging in a USB flash drive. Um, now, this is a game changer for those of us that are using Ubuntu as, like, for example, in my case, a kiosk distro, because... 
any place that we have kiosks, we have printers. They typically come attached to them. They t- the company that wants a kiosk typically wants a printer attached to it. So should you upgrade? That's the question that's on everyone's mind. Should you upgrade if you're running a previous version of Ubuntu? Um, no. I say no. If you're on a long-term support edition, so that would be 1204, 1404, or 1604, sure. If you don't mind reloading, there are no have-to-have features in 1704 that I found. So if you don't mind reloading, go ahead and do it. If you're not on an LTS, if you if you are and you don't want to reload, I wouldn't really worry about it. Again, open phones, uh, if we can get them working, one 450 No, that's one 450 Give me a call and tell me if you're upgrading or not and why. Headline, vice.com. There are now 11 states considering bills to protect your right to repair electronics. The right to repair movement is spreading. In recent weeks, legislatures in Iowa, Missouri, North Carolina have introduced bills that would make it easier for you to fix your electronics. Um, They are joining other states that have introduced legislation previously um, that kind of did the same thing. And the bill would basically require manufacturers to sell replacement parts to consumers and independent repair companies. And it would also require them to open source diagnostic manuals. It would also give independent repair professionals the ability to bypass software that locks and prevents repairs, allowing them to return a device back to its factory settings. Now, I think the basics of this bill are pretty simple. Basically, companies like Apple cannot tell you that the battery in your nine-month-old phone can't be changed. So, and, and Apple will do this, right? They will say, hey, you know, you, you purchased this phone a couple months ago and um, sorry, now if the battery dies in it or some tiny little component, even if it's a 4 or $5 component, fails, we want you to spend eight or $900 to go purchase a, to go purchase a new phone. Like it's, it's pretty ridiculous actually if you think about it. Um, and, and that's largely what's, what's being done. And so, Replacing on replacing the battery on your iPhone, that's what the Internet wants you to believe that is the most important portion of this bill. And, and in fact, replacing a battery on an $800 device is a very important issue. Don't, don't get me wrong. But you don't come to this radio program for the superficial. You come to this program because you know that we're going to give you a well-rounded analysis based on hours of meticulous research. So here's the broader aspect of this bill. That is – it isn't as clickbaity, and so not as many sites are bringing this up, but bills like this are more important, and they extend far beyond the use of iPads and iPhones. Popularmechanics.com, headline, right to repair is about a whole lot more than just iPhones. For Lydia Brash, who represents the Rural Eastern 16th Legislative District and introduced LB67, phones were way down the list of priorities. The primary impetus, she tells Popular Mechanics, is that we are an agriculture state, like North Dakota. One out of every four jobs is connected to agriculture. So when we are working in farming and you are tied to weather restrictions, planting and harvesting all have to take place when the weather is holding. Now, when we have an equipment breakdown, sometimes there is a waiting period to get repairs done. At the same time, you'll be chasing daylight. And so when you're helpless during that period of time to diagnose and maintain, repair your own equipment as you had in the past, farmers are falling behind in the waiting queue, waiting for somebody to work on their equipment. This strikes very close to home. It strikes very close to home because I have a lot of friends that work on farms. Now, here's the thing you have to understand about farmers. They are kind of like the original open source developers. A farmer can hack on anything, but instead of code, they use machines and tools. Now, we have tractor pulls around here, and it actually, Ben, come over here for a second. Come here, have a seat. Tell me, I know that you actually grew up on a farm, right? Yep, that's true. So I'm, I'm going to introduce Ben. Ben here is a producer. He's been he's been coming here, keeping the Ask Noah show on the air. Tell me a little bit about like the 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 software and how this kind of impacts a farmer's ability to do his job. Yeah, there definitely is a lot of impacts. Um, you see how a lot of farmers, you know, a lot of times you'll see places where instead of 
buying things, they'll figure out ways to build things themselves and they'll actually take some parts from something that wasn't really designed for and they'll retrofit it in a way that makes it so that they can use it for their individual purposes. My dad has done this with many trailers over the years. He's taken trailers and actually taken them apart, um, put different floors on them and then redesigned them to do this. And so you can see the way that being able to retrofit things is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the, the thing is, uh, this strikes, you know, I, I have, we go to tractor pulls. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever been to a tractor pull, but um, if you live in New York City or L.A., I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you've never, uh, if, if, if you live in L.A., L.A. proper probably does not have a yearly tractor pull. Now, I could be wrong about that. And if I am, I apologize. I don't mean to offend anyone. Uh, but... Um, Around here, that is a big deal. And part of a tractor pull is you got to feed all those people. Um, so I was, it was, it was, it was, it was very eye opening. A couple of years ago, I was out at this tractor pull and they were doing this turkey feed. So basically, they took a, they took big long strips of concrete cinder blocks and the guy who was, you know, really good at construction and building and stuff like that, he lined all of these cinder blocks up and he made two rows of cinder blocks. And then the guy that was kind of the fire bug, you know, bug of the, the group, he went and poured charcoal down the center of these two concrete cinder block, you know, rows. And then the mechanic of the group went and took – um how do I say it? Uh, basically, a big long rod and ran it between these two things, so the rod was directly over the charcoal and connected it to a small motor. And uh, you know what they did was they put the turkeys, full size turkeys, right through all, all this rod through all of these turkeys and started to and started the motor up very slowly, lit a fire and cooked. You know, I don't know how many turkeys and. Then the people at the barn, they started getting thirsty. They said, well, you know, we want coffee. Well, how do you make coffee? How do you feed that many people coffee? So what they did was, I didn't really have any idea, and I wouldn't have not thought to do this, but he took an old water heater, and he rigged it up to make coffee. And let me tell you, it was really good coffee, people. It was amazing. Now you're saying, no, what does this have to do with the right to repair? Everything. It has everything to do with it. Because if they were only able to modify the temperature control of that water heater with a special program that only the manufacturer had access to, there would be no coffee. If the motor wouldn't work unless its MAC address was, you know, provisioned to some central controller before it would even turn on, and if you think I'm exaggerating about that, just go try to install a replacement lock servo in a newer GM vehicle, we wouldn't have had turkey that year. Artificial barriers were put into place preventing people from owning their technology, and that, that, fund, that, is, that is fundamentally opposite of what this show stands for. They can't understand their technology. They can't work on it. They can't own it. So we would stifle innovation, and we would have, and we we would we would have been really hungry and really thirsty. That's what would have happened. Farmers are very very smart people. They are more than smart enough to fix their own tractors. They're very smart enough to do their own repairs. They don't need the help, uh, you know, and support of the manufacturer always. Now there are certain times when that's going to be necessary and required, but not always. And I think it's important that we recognize that some of the small things we need to allow farmers to fix that stuff themselves. They hate the fact that people don't have a market for their labor. I'm speaking, of course, about the manufacturers. They hate it. They can't stand the fact that, that as, a, as a manufacturer, they are driving themselves out of business. And instead of being innovative and making a better tractor that farmers absolutely have to have – Instead of making a better iPhone that people want to purchase because it does something that the previous iPhone didn't do, instead they are intentionally designing planned obsolescence into your devices. And as a company who has, you know, has very rooted beliefs in we want people to own their technology, I have a really big problem with this. Now, you might be wondering, what's the other side of this, right? There's always two sides to every story. So what is the other side to the what do the manufacturers have to say about this? <laughs> well, um, if you're ready for this, they say you might hurt yourself. I, I don't know how to uh, I don't know how to make that any less funny. And I, maybe I owe you a new monitor. Maybe I owe you a new keyboard because you just sprayed your beverage of choice all over your desk when I said that. But yeah, AT and T or Apple are worried that you might hurt yourself if they tell you how your device is put together. 
The Vice.com article was published April 10th, and so we're covering it today on the Ask Noah show. But because these 11 states have just joined this you know, going movement and it has existed prior, I've gone back and dug out articles back from February to give you a little bit of the background story from the manufacturer's perspective of why they are fighting this. So you're going to hear a, a date referenced March 9th, and of course, you know, that was, you know, last month. So that's why that is the way it is. According to Motherboard's source, an Apple representative will testify against the bill LB67 at a hearing in Lincoln alongside AT&T collectively. The two companies will argue against the legislation as a matter of safety, saying that consumers who repair their own phones could cause lithium batteries to catch fire. There is somewhat of a mordicum of concern there. If you have a lithium battery that is not encased in a plastic device, it is possible if you puncture that lithium battery that it violently starts on fire. And not just like it gets really warm and if it's around something, it starts on fire. Like, you know, it, it can be very dangerous. There's a, there's a couple of YouTube videos, so you can go check that out. But by and large, this is an idiotic argument. In fact, it would it makes people far less safe because they have to dig around inside of these 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 uh, devices, having no idea what they're up against. They're sticking screwdrivers in places because the on, that's the only way to figure the, figure it out. The article goes on to say Apple is not the only one citing safety measures. Tractor company John Deere is adamantly opposed, saying in such in a letter, which we'll have linked in the show notes. Such legislation should be voted down to protect consumers' significant investment to equipment. Well, here's the thing. If the manufacturer wants to say, hey, guys, we won't guarantee this product. We won't guarantee our our product's life if you make repairs on your own and we don't do authorized repairs. That's one thing. And I kind of understand that because they shouldn't be beholden to third-party labor, third-party parts, third-party untrained, you know, whatever. But to intentionally – prevent somebody from doing the work, even if you don't expect anything from the company in return, that's just downright wrong. You need to be able to own your technology. And that's the best they have for you. You might hurt yourself. That's the best they have for you. So 11 states in total have considered or will consider the right to repair legislation. They are Minnesota, Nebraska, Tennessee, New York, Massachusetts, Illinois, Kansas, Wyoming, Iowa, Missouri, and North Carolina. Now, this is a multi-year process. This It's not quite as simple as just we put the bills up and, and we vote on them because different legislative schedules – every state has a different legislative schedule. So the bills are already effectively dead for this legislative session in states like Minnesota, Nebraska, and Tennessee. The bills have yet to be heard in other states, but legislation of this nature is generally a multi-year process. So even though legislation is already dead in Minnesota, Nebraska, and Tennessee, its sponsors have vowed to put it back on the schedule next year, and that's to be expected. Okay, so I have a question for you guys. How many of you guys like the social interaction of Facebook and Twitter and G+, but you are sick of the advertisements or... Facebook reordering your feed or hiding stuff from certain people, all that good stuff. A good friend of mine was telling me a few weeks ago, he said, the greatest things about social networking is that you can be exposed to so many different viewpoints. And one of the worst things about social networking is certain sites only show you feeds from the people who interact with the most. So you run the risk of getting into an echo chamber uh, echo chamber only interaction with the people that you agree with. And that really struck a chord with me because if, if all of that is jiving with you, there is a new player in the social media space and that is Mastodon. I don't know if you've heard of Mastodon. Now, the first thing that came to my mind when I heard about what Mastodon was, what Mastodon is, was that basically – Mastodon was this 
Mastodon was basically diaspora. If you remember a couple of years ago, there was a social networking program called Diaspora, which is kind of the same thing that Mastodon is trying to be. But I think Mastodon has taken the ideas of diaspora and iterated on them enough to make it successful this time because federation in diaspora was a disaster. And basically what federation is, is you could set up your own diaspora interface, you know, instance, but it couldn't talk to any other diaspora instances. It could, but it never really quite worked right unless you were, you know, a genius. Um, and Mastodon is a free open source social network that's decentralized and is an alternative to commercial platforms. So it avoids the risk of a single company monopolizing your communication. All you have to do is pick a server that you trust and then you can interact with everyone else on that server. And here's the important part on any other server because anyone can run their own Mastodon instance and participate in the social network seamlessly. That's a big part. That federation thing is amazing. Now, the Mastodon site claims that they set themselves apart because they are – their timelines are in chronological order. They have um, they have public timelines. They have a 500-character limit per post. Now, again, a couple of weeks ago, we had some trivia on, on the program, 140-character Twitter limit came from the the 160 character SMS limit. The thing that people like about the 140 character limit on things like Twitter is that it keeps posts short and so you don't have people writing novels. The downside of that is you get what we call into tweet storms, which is people tweet back and forth constantly because they can only get 140 characters out at a time and it it tends to clog uh, timelines. So Mastodon is kind of splitting the difference around that road. They're not keeping it so short that it becomes impossible to do anything. At the same time, they are allowing uh, – they are limiting it to some degree so it, it doesn't get you know totally blown out. They have granular per-post privacy settings. This is a big thing for me. It's one of the reasons I never really got into Twitter because Twitter, great as it is, um, I have to – choose to broadcast to everyone or no one. There are times where I want to have the people that I speak with, you know, for the Ask Noah show. I would like to have an Ask Noah group and I would like to be able to talk to those people directly. I would like to be able to talk to everyone in certain cases. I would like to talk to family members certain times. So that level of granular control is really important to me and with Mastodon, looks like they're going to take it after Facebook. I've always thought that Facebook, for all the bad things I have to say about it, their privacy settings are fantastic. They have rich block and muting tools, which is really fantastic for, you know, especially those of us that work in media. We have a lot of trolls. The ability to just kind of mute those people, get them out of there, um, that's really helpful. Of course, they have no ads. They have no tracking. um, And they have an open source API for other apps and services. So I want to I want to talk about this. And again, we have people frantically running around trying to fix our phones. And hopefully that will uh, hopefully that will get resolved here shortly. One eight five five four five zero. No, that's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. Based on my research, it would appear that these Mastodon instances are popping up around communities. Um, I'm curious. Does anyone know of a Mastodon instance that's geared towards Linux users or open source communities? Um, you know, Greg in the Ask Noah Telegram group, which you can join at telegram.asknoahshow.com, has offered to set up a Mastodon instance. Would anyone be interested in a Linux or Ask Noah Show Mastodon instance? I- I'd be interested to know that. And if if you can't get through on the phones, if we don't get that, uh, if we don't get that working in short order here, just go over to asknoahshow.com. Click on the uh, the contact. There's a bunch of contact information there. Of course, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Click on the contact form. Choose the Ask Noah Show from the drop down menu. Send us a contact form that way. Tell us if you'd be interested in that because if Greg is willing to set this up and maintain it for us, you know we we could be on the cutting edge of this. Um, I really think that this is the next evolution of social networking, and here's why: the beauty and and the the beauty and originality of social networks was that there was a lack of what we call the gatekeeper. I studied communications back in college, and basically, the gatekeeper is what we call in media a person who gets to decide what ultimately goes out over the air. So, for example, the gatekeeper at Jupiter Broadcasting, as it were, would be Quish. He ultimately gets to decide what programs air, what programs don't. The gatekeeper at Logos Radio is, of course, the board that governs the radio station. You know, and, and so the great thing about the social networking, at, you know, in an infancy was if you had something to say and people wanted to hear you say it, 
you could go online and make a post and you could reach as many and actually more people than you could with traditional media. And that was a very appealing concept to a lot of people. And it it removed the it removed commercial barriers because no longer did you have to go to advertisers and get people to give you money to put a message out. No longer did you have to go to a news agency and train with somebody and then have that, you know, the editor ultimately decide what your message was going to be and how it was going to get produced and and sent out. You could own your own message and you could pull it, put it out there in its entirety. And so you saw a wide range of people, you know, cashing in on this, right? You have people that had very, very, you know, fringe views that were very, that were expressed, you know, in very vulgar language and that hit social media. And then you had people that, you know, you had other people that had, you know, very soft and, you know, very wide messages and those people hit social media. And then now you're actually seeing places like, you know, CNN and Fox and all these guys have kind of kind of gone in on it. It turns out they don't like losing control of the narrative. So you have politicians and you have people in power that are now trying to influence social media and decide what things can come in, what things can come out. We have a, a whole new system that decides, you know, what is fake news on Facebook? Because, you know, what's more what's more centered around free speech than telling somebody what is or isn't news, right? And as this change has happened, as we've watched the social media platforms decline and turn into restricted places where certain people are allowed on Twitter, certain people are banned from Twitter, certain people are allowed to post certain things on Facebook, so on and so forth – we have we have seen those platforms not completely turn into traditional media but certainly we are we are we are sliding that direction now i don't have a right to say whatever i want to say on those platforms i get that they moderate me because they own those platforms and i'm not trying to suggest otherwise there's no such thing as a first amendment right on facebook right it is a it is a it is a private server um but on the show, we value technology where you are in control because we want you to own your technology now, Mastodon fits that bill. So again, let me know what you think. One eight five five four five zero. 450 noah That's 1-855-450-6624. Are you interested in Mastodon? Would you use a instance centered around this radio show or Linux in general? I think that would be really interesting to be on the, on the cutting edge of that. Now, I was a little skeptical. Like I said at first, you know, I I kind of bought in early on in the, the whole diaspora thing. So I was a little skeptical when I first heard this. And uh, I want to take a, a moment to review a piece from Vice.com. Headline, Mastodon is like Twitter without moderation, so why are we not using it? The writer says, I figured my report back would be something like, yeah, it's weird. It's okay, though. Anyway, none of my friends are on here, so I'm back to the garbage bird site again. Social media services are natural mon- monopolies. Shrug. But in the middle of my writing my first dispatch from my place of exile, Mastodon began to change. It jumped from 23,000 users to 25,000 users to 30,000 viewers, users, and now over 35,000 users. Mastodon has no money. They have no advertisements. They have no venture capitalists. And they don't plan on getting any. It has no board of directors, no VP of product and no chief financial officer or CFO. So I think that this is the next evolution of social media. I think this is where social media is going to eventually wind up. And I say that because what we, what we saw, the infancy of social media was people owning their technology, people owning their own media. And as we start to get further and further away from that, people always gravitate towards the path of least resistance. So, you know, if you remember back in the days of MySpace where, you know, things were fairly controlled, it was kind of tailored towards the, the music community and stuff, and they chose what you, what you could and couldn't have on there. Um, I think what we've seen is, is that has changed a little bit and that landscape has, has shifted a little bit. And so I'm going to be really interested to see where that goes. And I'm excited that we can be kind of right on the cutting, uh, the cutting edge of this. I just saw the post in Reddit. It seems like it's gotten a lot of traction. Everyone that I have talked to, both in the Telegram group, again, that's telegram.asknoahshow.com, in the chat room, over, over the, um, the Reddit forums, all of those people seem to have centralized around this idea that Mastodon is a really good thing and I think it could really take off. Again, the key to Mastodon is 
I can spit up a Mastodon server because I want to center something around the Ask Noah show or around Linux in general. And maybe you as a person, you don't really care. So you just go to, uh, you know, the, the main Mastodon site and you just sign up for a generic account. The great thing is, is I can socially interact with you on Mastodon, even though we're on separate servers, thanks to their federation system. Um, or you can choose... My understanding is, anyway, you can choose to see only posts from the you know a given server that you're a part of. So maybe you want to set up a company Mastodon server. Maybe you want to set up a Mastodon server for your church. Um, all of these things will allow you to take the power of social networking and craft it and mold it into a way that really fits your specific use case. I think that's really I think that's going to be a really great thing. Um, so if you're interested in a Linux-based Mastodon server, uh, go ahead and use the contact form or give us a call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 855-450-6624. Now, one of the things I want to do is I want to answer some of the questions that have been coming into this program. I've gotten a lot of uh, interaction. I have tried to be on YouTube answering comments. I've tried to be in the Reddit answering questions there. I know a lot of you have sent emails in, and um, essentially, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to incorporate those on air. Now, most days, I would uh, we're going to be taking a, you know a lot heavier phone calls, and the call volume is going up. And of course, the first time we try to do a remote broadcast, then all of a sudden we have problems back at the studio, and now we're kind of juggling that. But I think long term, what we're going to try to do is funnel a lot of those questions in through phone lines. The issue is. Um, the past couple episodes, we've a lot of people are sending questions in via Telegram and email and stuff like that. We'd really like to get those on the phone line. So if you have a question, if at all possible, we'd really like you to to join us live at 6 p.m. Central and uh, and call in with those questions. But I'm going to take a few of them from the email. So uh, today in the noob section, we are going to be answering some of your questions that you emailed in. And if you have questions or comments about the show, head over to the Ask Noah dashboard, asknoahshow.com and use your chosen of co- chosen method of contact method, email, phone or the contact form and write in again. Got this question two weeks ago. If you'd like to stay anonymous, you certainly can using the contact form. Just make up a name. Don't put in an email address. First up is Chris. Chris writes in and says, hello, Noah. I'm really digging the new show, and I've learned a ton of stuff from your shows over the last few years. I want to be able to share my knowledge with others on YouTube. What is your favorite screen recorder? Also, do you have any advice for someone thinking about doing small business IT consulting, and how do you overcome a client's resistance to change from Windows or Mac to Linux? Well, that's a great question. I am actually going to answer this question in reverse. So first, I'm going to answer your question about uh, starting an IT consulting business. So how do you overcome a client's resistance to change? The dirty secret is you don't. There's an old saying, something along the lines of like a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, right? So you can't really talk people out of their firm beliefs. So if you have that client that says – we need to run Microsoft Windows because Microsoft Windows is the most fantastic operating system and does everything we want it to do with no problems. I don't know that you're going to have much uh, luck convincing him to do other ways. Uh, you have people like that. They're just stuck in their ways. There's really not much you can do to help them. The thing is, I if a client is married to a solution, they're not looking for an IT consultant. What they're looking for is monkey hands. And to be honest with the AltaSpeed technologies, we charge way too much an hour to be simply monkey hands. You can uh, you can find some guy that's uh, you know in in technical school, and he can probably do just as good of a job as we can if you're just going to have him follow you know written directions or something like that uh, at a quarter the cost that we're going to charge you. And additionally, at AltaSpeed Technologies, we guarantee all of our work. So for example, if you were to call customer care, 1-866-280-1433, and you request us to come out to your uh, site, your business, and you want us to work on your network. Let's say, for example, you have a very old Wi-Fi system, or maybe you don't have a Wi-Fi system at all. Maybe you run a restaurant or a bar or a hotel. Wi-Fi these days is like running water. Um, everyone wants to be on Wi-Fi. Everyone is constantly digging in their phones. And if you don't believe that, just go sit down at a restaurant and look at how many people are on their phones. We can do that for you at a very, very reasonable rate. But you're only going to pay us once. You're only going to pay us once for that particular problem. So if we come out and we look at your Wi-Fi network and we say, okay, 
all of the equipment here is is in good working order, but you had this configuration issue and and we fix it, you're going to get exactly one and one only invoice for, from us for 30 days. We guarantee everything for 30 days. We have to come out a second time within that 30-day period. You're not going to get a second bill for us. Now, that does a couple of things. First of all, it saves on paper, and that's always great. But it ensures we get the work done right the first time. Because after the first time that we have to come out to you, it's costing us money. We are losing money every single time. We only build you the first time. We're gonna, it's going to cost us then every time after that to send a technician out to look. We can't hold that guarantee if we knowingly institute technology that we're confident is going to fail. If I go out and you tell me, this is our main production machine and it handles all of our credit card transactions, what should we run? We're not going to put Windows XP on that machine for you. We're not. And if you tell us to, we're going to let you go as a client because we can't guarantee that. That machine is going to go down. We know it's going to go down before we ever put it up, and it's just not a good way to do business. So if we go into a business and they say, this is how we're going to run our network. This is what you're going to do. This is what we want you to do. We just – we politely pass those people on to another firm. Now, on the other hand, and we do have clients that do this, if you call and say, listen, I don't care how you do it, but we need to be able to get X, Y, and Z done then we're going to give you a bid to get X, Y, and Z done. That's what you're going to pay. And then we're going to make absolute certain that you'll get X, Y, and Z done, no matter how many times we have to come out to make that happen. And we're pretty good at our jobs, and we don't, we're still in business after a couple of years, so uh, clearly we've, we've found a way to make that work. Obviously, that's, it's pretty rare that you have a client that comes in and says, you know, do whatever you want, because you have budget constraints and you have software constraints, and oftentimes an individual business is owned by a larger you know, franchise or, um, so it's, you know, it's not, it's not the majority of our clients that will say that, but every once in a while we have somebody that, that gives us just kind of an open-ended, you know, mandate says do whatever you want, but get it done. The closer we get to that ideal scenario, the better their network is going to run long-term. And we track all of that stuff. So we can, I can tell you that definitively. What we found from years of doing business, small business, working with communities is that if you keep the best interest of your client at the top of your priority list, then they're going to keep calling you back. There is this myth that is perpetuated around um, social media and other places that says basically only bad people that, that act badly make it ahead. The only way you can get ahead in life is if you steal money or you screw people over. And I, I've always – it's always rubbed me the wrong way because I've never found that to be true. Take, for example, if you have an auto garage and you open up an auto garage and somebody brings you their car and you totally mess them over. You don't do a good job. You charge them way too much money. They never don't actually fix their car properly and, and they leave. There's no way they're going to anyone else and telling them anything other than don't go to so-and-so's garage because it's a terrible garage. He messes you over. He charges too much money. He doesn't fix the, fix the problem, right? And so that person's garage is eventually going to go out of business, probably in fairly short order. Grand Forks, North Dakota, town of, you know, whatever, 50,000 people. It's not going to take long before word gets around that you're running a, a, a you know, a, a crappy business. On the other hand, if you serve that client very, very well, if you fix their car, you do a really great job for them, they're going to go around, they're going to tell everyone around them, so-and-so fixed my car, so-and-so gave me a great price, he did really good work, and, you know, it was, it was amazing. I was so happy to write that check because... I was so appreciative of the work he did. He really helped me out. He went the extra mile. That's Those are the companies that ultimately succeed. That's how Jeff Bezos built Amazon into the multinational company that it is, you know, start, you know shipping packages all over the world, is because he served his customers very, very well at the beginning. He found a niche and he nailed it. As much as I'm not a fan of Microsoft, Bill Gates found a niche and he nailed it. He found a place that he could serve other people and he served them well. And the more you serve people, the more money you'll ultimately make because the more, you know, the more gratitude people are going to have towards you. So I always tell people when they ask me, they say, you know, how do you prioritize running your business? And I say, keep their interest at the top of your priority list and they'll keep coming back. Don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the technology. Both of those things will fall into place if you are concentrating on serving your clients well. That's the biggest – that's the single most valuable piece of small business advice I can give anyone looking to, to get into this field. Uh, you know, the other, there's one other one I'll add. 
I get people all the time. I interview people all the time that sit down and say, I want to work in IT because I want to make $80,000 a year, $90,000 a year, whatever. It's true that the, the IT consulting firm, we do tend – it is it is pretty capital rich. We do tend to make a decent amount of money compared to some other fields. But you will never succeed in this field if you get into it for the money and here's why. People like me, I don't just show up and work 10 to 6, which is AltaSpeed's operating hours. I wake up in the morning and I am reading about technology and I am playing with technology and I'm looking at what the next technology I want to buy is. Then I go to work at 10 o'clock and I work from 10 to 6 on technology and the entire time I am looking at clients' problems and thinking, how could I solve that? What technology might be coming up on the horizon and how could I solve that tomorrow? And then when I get home, I'm taking all of that beta technology that hasn't really hit the market. It's not mainstream yet and I'm trying it. And I'm playing with it and I'm seeing how does it work. And I make these little setups inside of my home. My home has, you know, RFID, a commercial RFID entry system. That's not, that's partly because I'm just a geek and I like playing with it, but it also serves as a very practical installation experiment for how could we do this as a business. And so as I continue to try these things and as I continue to learn about these technologies, in, you know, in a couple weeks, in a couple months, a year later, ultimately what ends up happening is a business comes to me and says, hey, we want to implement XYZ. Can you do it? And I can say, yeah, I've been playing with it for the last year. And I'll give you the most recent example of when this really came home for me. When OBS, the Open Broadcaster Suite, the thing that is bringing the Ask Noah program to you right now was originally on the air. When that happened, I, I, I started playing with it the day it got released. And I learned how to make it work even though it was – it was not robust. You, at the time, you couldn't map keys to switch, so you had to manually click on the scenes you wanted to to, to switch. You couldn't stream to more than one location. Um, it, it had very limited scene composure. It, it was just, it was just, it was very beta software. But I was playing with it, and I was learning, it, and I was actually making it work. We actually did the first all Linux broadcast, I believe, that Jupiter Broadcasting has ever done on location at Linux Fest a couple of years, thanks to OBS. And as that technology progressed, I eventually – I was following it the entire time and about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I was at a church and they were saying, we want to be able to stream our church services. And so what would that cost? Well, the answer before would have been you had to buy a $1,600 Mac and you would have had to buy this $700 software and this $500 capture card and these you know $2,000 cameras and it would cost you like $10,000 and we could set up a system to stream. I was able to tell them, hey, guys, guess what? For a couple hundred bucks, we buy a, a dedicated machine. In fact, I have a spare one. I, I, I would be willing to donate to you guys because I believe in what you're doing. And we're going to get these C920 USB webcams that do 30 frames per second, but they only cost 69 bucks. And we'll be able to put these in various places and you'll be able to stream your entire church service at, you know, for pennies on the dollar. Um, at the same time, we have watched all of these streaming services that used to exist that you'd have to pay money to stream. And now YouTube is doing that. And so – as I'm watching this technology, I'm able to implement these solutions as fast as they come out, as fast as they are available, right when the customer needs it. I am, I am doing the, you know, the, the Wayne Gretzky thing where I'm skating to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. And if you get into it for the money and you think you're going to show up from 8 to 5 and, and do what I do and compete with me, you're never going to make it. It's never going to happen because you have to be a real geek. You have to really love this stuff. You have to really own this stuff. That's a really long-winded answer. Uh, <laughs> but your first question. What do I recommend for a screen recorder? Kazam. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. But I have done a number of tutorials for Jupiter Broadcasting. And in almost every case, I have used Kazam. Now, there is a more fancy way to capture your screen. You can capture it actually in OBS. Um, a lot of people do it that way. The other way to do it, probably the best way if you can afford to do this, is there is a HDMI capture device called Magwell, and it's available on Amazon Prime. It's about two ninety nine. Again, we'll have a link in the show notes for you. That is going to be the ultimate way because what the Magwell will let you do is it'll actually let you capture parts of the screen before the software even loads. So, for example, I can record the process of me installing an operating system using Kazam. Can't do that, or I'm sorry, using this Magwell. Can't do that with software based solutions like Kazam. If you can afford to go that way, that's a great way to go. But I think the card is like $299. And the other thing is you have to have a, a pretty good USB bus. Some of them don't, and, and then and then it'll kind of fall apart on you. Um, but Kazam is a great piece of software if you're just trying to show 
an example of, of how to do something or, or how something is done. Um, it's a little app shows up in the in your uh, toolbar. You click start recording. You can set it to output um, a like an MPH two sixty four MP four file with thirty frames per second and and scrapes the screen. Ten eighty p video thirty frames per second works really really well. All of I think all of the screen capturing I've done for for JB in the past has been done with Kazam. Forrest writes in and he says, "Hi Noah." You were after uh, you were after ideas on how to get people started on Linux. Forget the terminal. There, I said it. If you want to bring people over from Windows, you need to forget the terminal. The average person on the street wants a GUI or graphical interface, as we call it in the biz. This has its benefits, as we want them to love their Linux machine. I believe it comes from simplicity—not your command line simplicity, but visual simplicity. Well, Forrest, I agree with you. In fact, the Getting Started with Linux video guide, an absolute beginner's guide to getting started with Linux, we produced it with the essence of zero command lines once we actually got into Linux. We did all of the repo ads from the graphical uh, interface, even though that's not <laughs> – it is a very complicated process as compared to just pasting in a line of code, but we did it. Um, we update and install software all from the graphical interface, which again, not as ideal. You run into a couple little weird buggy things, but it can be done. Um, desktop users want to interact with the desktop in a graphical way. I completely agree with that. And I think that there are a lot of advantages to the graphical interface. You know, the thing is, there are two ways to look at this. There are two clubs, so to speak. The first club is the command line is a more efficient way to get something done. I can always type a command faster than I can click on a various, uh, you know, various buttons. That's, that is a, that is a, that is a for sure thing. And when you are doing system administration, being able to get things done quickly and efficiently is key. Not to mention the fact that being able to get them done from any location is key. And with commands, it means I can execute, I can make changes to the system and stuff like that from anywhere in the world as long as I have an SSH connection. That is not the case with uh, th- that is not the case with desktop users. A lot of those things that we count on in the system administration world are not. They're not important when it comes to desktop users. They just want to be able to use their computer. And so you should be able to get everything done in the graphical interface. I I firmly believe that. And I think that will draw more users. And so like I said, we have done the entire guide without relying on the command line. And I'm very proud of that. And I think it's a very necessary thing. Um, So, yeah, uh, if you have any other ideas of what we can do to get people started on Linux. That's really what I am trying to focus this program about. Obviously, when the phones are working, I want to take your calls and answer your questions on the air. I also want to get your input on the stories that we're covering, stuff like that. My real passion is getting people started with Linux. And I don't know exactly how that's going to come into fruition this year, but I'm really hoping that uh, that when we get out to Linux Fest, Jupiter Broadcasting, we can work something out to where we can do another – I don't know if I want to do a competition again because that's from production standpoint in addition to trying to do Linux Fest Northwest. And this year we're going to be spinning off two new shows and winding down one show and doing one show that we've never done live from there. And there's a lot of other things in the works. I don't know if I, I'm really up for that challenge, but – I do want to do something where we start targeting newer users because I think that's a real void in the Linux world. I think there's a lot of resources once you kind of get your feet wet. If you can get Linux installed, if you can get it running, if you can get some of your equipment up, then I think there's a place for you in a number of the shows that we produce. Of course, there's a number of shows outside the network too. Um, And of course, there's the Mumble Room, Tuesday's Love. You can join those places and get some support once you kind of get started. But I've often found forms, I've often found chat to be somewhat hostile. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't mean that in a, in a, in a judgy way. I just mean that a lot of experienced Linux users figured it out themselves the first time. And so they kind of expect you to figure it out the first time. The amount of times I've seen somebody post RTFM, um, you know, inside of a chat or inside of a, inside of a, a message board thread. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a real turnoff to uh, new users. In fact, one of the guys that I'm really hoping to get on the program very soon, in fact, I think we're going to get him on either June or July, is a man uh, by the name of Jason Plum. Now, Jason Plum is from, uh, well, he's from uh, uh, Pennsylvania, but I meet up with him 
a couple times during the year. And he actually, there's two things I want to talk to him about. The first thing is he helped me with a Linux kernel pro- project that I think is very interesting. But the second thing he has done, he has developed a presentation um, on why Linux users need to be more understanding of basically uh, newbies and how they need to treat newbies and the appropriate conduct for newbies. And he gave a fantastic presentation last year itself, and I believe it's up on YouTube if you can find it. And he basically talks about how we have a problem in the Linux community with elitism, where we believe that we are so much smarter and so much better than everyone else, and so everyone should just kind of figure it out. And what he suggests is, I think it's very practical and very useful advice. And basically what he suggests is, as a experienced Linux user, when you have a newbie ask you a question that you think that they should be able to figure out, answer their question the first time and then point them in the direction of how they should have arrived at the answer. So you might say, they might say something like, my Wi-Fi isn't working, what do I do? Well, you need to find a supported Wi-Fi adapter. Here is a supported Wi-Fi adapter. Here are some of the things you could try to get your Wi-Fi adapter enabled. Maybe you need to enable the Broadcom chipset, something like that. And by the way, in the future, here's what you might Google and here's where you might find this information. Here's the relevant portion of the information. I have been linked to the ArchWiki. I don't know how many times. And the thing is, the ArchWiki is very good. If you've not seen it, it is a it, it has a comprehensive list, not just for Arch, for really any Linux problem. They have a comprehensive list of how to fix it and and information about it, and it explains it in great detail. The problem with that is 90% of the time when I'm already frustrated with the problem, I don't want to learn about the problem. I want to fix the problem. I just want to – I want a single line of code that I can copy and paste. If that's all that's necessary, that's all I want to see. I don't want to know the rest of of that information. It's nice to have it available, but it would be nice if like – there was, you know, at the very beginning, it said to fix the problem right away. Just do the, just copy and paste this monkey see monkey do. We get you back on the, uh, you know, online. And that's what Jason recommends is he recommends help the user first solve their problem. And then once you've done that, then their mind is then open to, okay, now let me learn about this system. Now let me learn how I can fix it. More importantly, how I can learn to support myself. Because the reality is <clears throat> people went to Linux to begin with because they wanted to own their technology. Right. If people wanted an easy experience, they would just stick on Mac OS. They would just uh, they would just stick with Windows because everyone uses Windows. Everyone uses Mac OS. So they are starting out with a willingness to climb uphill to a certain degree. So don't don't smash them, you know, right off the bat. And I really want this program to be, you know, a safe place for people to come in and ask those questions. And I had uh, I had a comment on YouTube. Somebody was saying, "How come you haven't covered a lot of the email?" We just got a lot of the email boxes set up, and we were using them to facilitate some of the uh, feeds for the network. And so at that point, I was sharing the email box with other people, and so I didn't have it mapped to my computer because a lot of the stuff was coming in was for other people to see, and I didn't want to mark the messages red and all that good jazz. That is all complete now, so all of the feeds are there. By the way, real importantly, I need your help with something. If you have time, head over to the contact forms or use your email contact method of choice. What I'd like to do is get a coffee mug and t-shirt system set up. And one of the things we want to do is come up with a creative, fun, catchy phrase, maybe two to five words, something that's easy to print about Ask Noah. And then we want to productize that and see if we can give some of those away at Linux Fest Northwest and following events so on and so forth. So if you have ideas for a creative idea, go ahead and send them to questions at asknoahshow.com, use the Ask Noah dashboard, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, use the contact link. Any of those things will work, but let us know your ideas of how we can make a coffee mug or a t-shirt with something kind of fun, catchy, that would get people interested in the show. Again, we need your help to spread the word. So make sure to point Noah, point people to asknoahshow.com. Give out that toll-free number, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. And remember, next week we're going to be live from Arlington, Washington, right in JB1 Studios. We're going to do the show live that Monday. The following Saturday, we'll be live from Linux Fest Northwest on the show floor. Now, that's going to be a big event for us because we're going to be taking your questions live on the air right there from the show floor. I'm going to go out and find the movers and shakers in the community, bring them over and have them answer your questions with me. And then the Monday after that, I'll be back in JB1 and we'll do another show. So you're going to get three Ask Noahs in that seven-day period. And I would really ask that you tune into all of them 
Again, they're going to be broadcasted on jblive.tv as well as right here in Grand Forks, KEQQ Logos Radio 88.3 LPFM. So, coffee mug, and please listen to all three shows. We would appreciate it. We need your help to spread the word of the show. Make sure to tell people to head over to asknoahshow.com. Give out that contact number, one 450 noah That's one 450 And our lifetime is Monday at 6 o'clock p.m. So that brings us to the end of this week's show. We'll be back next Monday at 6 o'clock p.m. Central. A huge thank you to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, and Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand you off to Crosspoint coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ 88.3, LPFM, Grand Forks.